Welcome to the next episode of The One Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. I'm excited to welcome on Dr. Lauren Tessier, a mold expert and a very respected colleague of mine. She will speak with us today about mold-related illness. We'll go into some of the differences between the various types of mold-related illness, such as fungal infections, mycotoxicosis, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, and mold allergy. She'll also share with us how someone with a mold-related illness might present with symptoms, what they might be experiencing in their body, and how they often go misdiagnosed. She'll discuss with us the treatment and the assessment and the lab testing that's involved with mold-related illness. And she shares a number of resources to help people who are struggling with mold-related illness get connected with a broader community. And she discusses some of the very interesting work she's involved with in nonprofit and also in her professional practice. Please join me in welcoming my special guest, Dr. Lauren Tessier. Dr. Tessier, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and we are um, reconnecting after many years of not speaking from just because of careers going in different directions, living in different parts of the country. It was great catching up with you before the episode. Um, Today, we were focusing on your specialty, which is mycotoxin illness, mycotoxin and its relation to health. What brought you into this space? You know, I think um, there's a lot of reasons why we go into the fields that we do. Um, and, you know, we pay attention to a lot of the signs and developments in our life. And, you know, there's a reason why I went to naturopathic school. There's a reason why I moved to Vermont. Um, but upon landing in Vermont, um, one of the curious things is I knew that it was a, a flood zone from 2011 due to Hurricane Irene. And, um, you know, I was doing primary care here, kind of pulling out all the stops and had some stuff that was kicking around for some people who um, had suffered through the flood, but were complaining about issues with brain fog and fatigue. And they were just, you know, non-responsive to all the tools that you know to, to throw out those things coming coming fresh out of school. So asked about environmental things, uh, thought more about the flood, found out that quite a few of um, the houses in the local area are essentially um, uh, just covered in mold from the floods. Um, so, you know, that my community more or less led me here. Um, And I would have to say that what has kept me going um, is that I had an uncle looking back when I was very young who um, lived in an apartment that was partially, um, you know, uh, underground on one side. And it was um, damp and it was essentially had mold. Um, He developed Wegener's granulomatosis took him Boston area hospitals um, upwards of six weeks to even diagnose this. And so, um, you know, there, there is a connection between mold and autoimmunity. Um, and, you know, I think that that's often uh, 
fought about or argued about in certain spheres. Um, but the reality is uh, mold causes immune system dysfunction. And I don't want other people that I come in contact with to, to suffer such a, a similar and um, tragic loss uh, from something mm-hmm. that was potentially environmentally um, exacerbated. I don't want to say caused. I want to be proper with my language, but essentially exacerbated, you know. And then, of mm-hmm. course, of course, when you get deep in, in something that you really enjoy and um, you thrive off of, I mean, sometimes you find yourself in those situations. Um, and, you know, it's not uncommon for Lyme doctors to have had Lyme themselves. And um, probably in the past two, two to three years, as close as even this fall, um, I have had my own uh, bouts with navigating the world of mold within my own home on two separate different occasions. So I have the firsthand experience um, and I have, you know, patient experience. And then I have the, the, the heartfelt experience that really keeps me moving forward and all of this. So that's more or less how I got to where I am right now. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's in your part of the world, I imagine, um, the mold illness is more prevalent. Is that, is that accurate? Well, it, it depends on what part of the world, you know, you're, you're located out in Seattle, correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's like tit for tat over there with, with all those yeah. and it, you know, in Vermont, we do have some humidity issues, um, but even Arizona, I think a lot of people think about, oh, I'm going to go to Arizona. I'm going to take this mold sabbatical. It's going to be dry. It's going to be great. And it is really, for some people, life-changing. However, you know, a lot of the houses down there have swamp coolers and so, and, or poorly balanced ACs. And it's not uncommon for indoor environmental molds to also be everywhere down in Arizona, you know, mold is limited by its growth medium and the relative humidity of a space. And if you can control both of those, you're going to be doing really well. But if you're not controlling both of those, no matter where you're located, you know, you're going to have an uphill battle in your hands. Oh, that's that's a really good point. So I'd like to back up and build a little bit of a fence around some of the terminology because one of the things that gets confused in medicine related to mold is the difference between mycotoxin illness and disorders that are related to like a mold infection or a mold in, an invasive infection, such as one of the outbreaks we've had in our community um, was in 2019, the um, Seattle Children's um, Hospital had some invasive mold illness develop. And I think a lot of people, you know, when you, when they compare what we're talking about to that, um, there's a disconnect. And can you just sort of clarify that for us as the difference between the two scenarios? Sure. And I'm going to take it a step further and just kind of discuss the the different flavors of mold illness, because I think it really brings together a fuller picture for people. So um, depending on what age bracket you fall into, you may or may not remember the, the Venn diagrams of our youth, where essentially it's two circles overlapped. And that center where those two circles overlap are essentially the shared characteristics of whatever two things you're comparing. 
what I encourage people to do in this exercise is to not picture two, but four circles kind of set up like a flower with a, a central part where they all overlap. Each one of those circles can be a different facet of mold illness. I use mold illness as kind of a catch-all term. So the, the first type would be fungal infection. And this is going to be your deep invasive fungal infections, something like your uh, pulmonary aspergillosis. The next circle would be your, your fungal allergy. So something that would be mostly mediated by IgG, or excuse me, I'm sorry, <laughs> IgE. Um, and then we have your, your mycotoxic kosis picture, where it is a toxic state due to mycotoxins. And then the fourth and final one is SIRS, or that chronic inflammatory response syndrome, um, as, as developed by uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker in the late 90s. So all of those four things, someone can have just mycotoxicosis alone, someone could have a fungal allergy alone, or depending on what's happening, someone could have a um, pulmonary aspergillosis, so a fungal infection or a mold infection, and essentially have it overlapping with mycotoxicosis because they have a fungus in their body secreting mycotoxins. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to kind of step back, take the case and really understand um, what it might be that they're dealing with. Because if you know what they're dealing with, then you have a better understanding of uh, ordering therapies um, and kind of uh, going after things in, in a more logical order. Okay. So let's take um, the third and fourth scenarios, like the Michael toxosis or SIRS, how would they typically present um, clinically compared to other conditions? Yeah, so that's, that's a really great question. And so both of these, once again, they're going to have some overlap um, because of the, the nature of what we're dealing with. So what I typically find is that if it is mycotoxicosis, you're typically going to have more, more of a neurological picture. Because these mycotoxins are lipophilic, and research shows that they love hanging out in fatty tissue. They find deposition in brain tissue, liver tissue, and adipose tissue. So, um, you know, everything that's really high fat, which is the nervous system, is going to be impacted by it. And so usually what I see, I'm just going to kind of go through a litany of symptoms here. Anything from um, fatigue, wandering nerve pain dizziness, nausea, vomiting, uh, low libido, anxiety, uh, brain fog, kind of higher cognitive executive tasks like planning, being organized, following conversation, reading comprehension. Um, you know, sometimes we see it as uh, tics, balance issues, headaches, numbness and tingling, lightheadedness. Uh, sometimes we see this internal vibrating or buzzing sensation. Um, and then it can move a little bit over because some of them are endocrine disruptors into the more hormonal space. So, um, you know, hot flashes, poor libido, thyroid dysfunction, decreased muscle mass, adrenal fatigue. Um, it's, uh, it's really concentrating from what I find with mycotoxicosis in the endocrine and the nervous system. Whereas with SIRS, SIRS is a little bit of a, 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 wild, a wild rodeo. 
when it comes to symptoms. We call it the multi-system, multi-symptom illness, meaning that there's lots of symptoms in different systems in the body that people are experiencing. So these people will typically go into their PCP with like 20, 30 symptoms, I kid you not, and um, they're, they're told that they're depressed or they're put on, you know, Lyrica or something like that um, and sent on their way. But these people, the reason why they have so many symptoms in different systems is because of the inflammation um, that they experience. Inflammation in general has, has an iron in every fire of the body. It impacts every system that you can wrap your head around. So with something like chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is exactly what it sounds like, chronic inflammation that just won't quit, you have it affecting every system of the body. So we see everything from a similar neurological picture as mycotoxicosis, similar hormonal picture as mycotoxicosis. But then we see issues with like joint pain, muscle pain, morning stiffness, muscle cramping. And then we see um, respiratory cough, that kind of picture, sinus issues, almost like an allergic picture. And then we see uh, fluid balance issues. So um, POTS, hypotension, or um, uh, difficulties holding on to um, their water, polydipsia, polyuria, um, and then GI symptoms too. And then of course, immune system symptoms. Usually people with SIRS are um, sick all the time. They're either uh, sick or that all the time, or, you know, they just have such a suppressed immune system um, that, you know, their, their white cell counts are just tanked. So, you know, that's kind of the four different main pictures. And as you can see, there's, there's quite a bit of overlap between just those two alone. Mm -hmm. So I imagine it takes a while for someone to get a diagnosis um, in this realm. and what other specialists have they likely seen before they end up seeing someone who is adept at assessing for mycotoxin illness or SIRS? Yeah, um, usually I, I see patients probably upwards of like 10 or 15 doctors before um, they end up finding their way to me. And it's usually Lyme. It's almost always Lyme as a comorbid condition or something that's happened um, uh, prior prior to this or what the catch-all diagnosis is. The thing is chronic Lyme, like a lot of chronic other infective issues, looks a lot like SIRS because in, in these chronic infective issues, you know, it's not an acute infection. There's not that white blood cell spike. There's not that fever. There's not that acute illness. Instead, it's just the body's long-term chronic inflammation of having the bug around that's causing these issues. So you know, you can technically have a SIRS that is Lyme-induced or other chronic infection-induced. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that people will come to you with a Lyme diagnosis, but it's something, it's actually something else, or, and also you're saying that sometimes they can run together? Yes, yeah, so they can absolutely run together, and you can still have a Lyme diagnosis and a SIRS diagnosis. Um, you know, it, that one does not you know, exclude the other. Um, so yeah, definitely. I see people who will have SIRS induced by Lyme, the same way you can have SIRS induced by mold and water damage exposure. 
I see. So it seems like people will have gone to like a rheumatologist, neurologist, maybe an endocrinologist, cardiologist, and been turned away with no answers and then eventually may make their way to someone who's more literate in mycotoxin illness. Is that kind of the general path? Yeah, it's the, I would definitely say so. Yeah. And it's usually the clean bill of health. There's, there's nothing wrong with you. Go, go on, get out of here, you know? Yeah. And that's, I mean, I imagine, I mean, that's, that's part of the illness too, is that you get more and more isolated and you get to a place where you feel like um, there may never be an answer for you. And I imagine that's part of what what continues to build on the physical symptoms as well. Oh, without a doubt, you know, um, for anyone who's uh, just kind of running back into mind-body medicine, this, this has such a huge impact. And you know, we're taught mind-body medicine to a certain extent in our education. And then I think a lot of us get to the, the front lines of care and primary care, and all of a sudden we're focused on hypothyroidism and who has Hashimoto's and do you have enough B12? And we really forget about the mind-body component. And when you're dealing with people who have complex chronic illness, you know, mold included in this, it is so important for us to pause and think about what we can do to support the panicked part of the brain. Because psychoneuroimmunology, the connection between, you know, psychological well-being, how your immune system functions and how your nervous system functions. I mean, it's, it's just so incredible. And there's so many wonderful theories out there between the polyvagal theory, um, you know, working on limbic system retraining. There's all these different ways that you can pull people out of the fight or flight which can help to bring down their inflammation um, and really help calm their system. So their treatments really start to stick. Um, so you're right, you know, it, their, their illness in and of itself, the isolation, the being turned away from doctors, not being believed is such a huge traumatic impact that it, it I think it in part keeps people sick. Yeah. And I think a lot of us who have worked in the field of, naturopathic medicine, um, we can see how um, patients are often at a point where they um, they feel like uh, they're more and more seeing providers for the support and the family members will look at them or the community members will look at them and say, well, you appear well. So um, they they have a disconnect versus someone who has an obvious physical injury. There might be some more um, empathy and understanding. Um, the The physicality of it doesn't stand out or scream out to just a layperson walking around. Right, and maybe to people who are listening who who feel that way, who feel isolated. There's amazing online communities out there, people who can hold you. And if you're privy to like Instagram or Twitter, um, check out hashtags of, but you don't look sick. Um, hashtag Spoonie, hashtag Spoonie Life, um, hashtag Invisible Illness. There's all of these different um, people out there who hold that space and who know that space, but sometimes it's just hard to find those communities um, online when you don't know what you're looking for, but you need that support. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Well, let's talk about testing. And 
this is a whole, probably a whole seminar in itself, I imagine. But if you could just briefly take us through um, how someone is evaluated for mycotoxin illness and SIRS and um, what what that looks like and some of the problems that we see and some of what, what you've learned as a clinician. Mm-hmm. The, the first thing that I will say to kind of um, preface all of this is your rule outs are so important. If you have someone coming in with like, um, you know, uh, loss of time or absence seizures or really um, poor memory, you need to get them worked up appropriately. They need to see a neurologist. They need to have an MRI. They need to have the full workup. If you have someone with um, heart palpitations and something that looks like POTS, have them get the full workup because you don't want to overlook something that could be, you know, in insanely dangerous, like something like uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia and confuse it for something else. So I, that's just kind of what I beg people to keep in mind. What you want when you go to work with these people for what I'm about to outline, you want someone who's gone to all the specialists and has more or less a clean bill of health, more or less. I say that with quotes. Um, and those are typically the people who have come to me across the board are quote unquote fine. So mm-hmm. knowing that had proper workup, um, you know, then we start to dialogue about mold. And I'm lucky because my practice is called life after mold. My population of people that I work with is self-selected. They either think it's mold or they know they have a mold exposure. So right off the bat, I know kind of what I'm working with. It's not far-fetched to consider. So I think the audience also needs to understand that Um, I have a little bit of a a, a cherry-picked practice with this, too. So when people come in, I always tell people, low-hanging fruit first. What we're going to do is technically low-hanging fruit, I would consider mycotoxicosis, which can be internal, meaning that there's an internal fungal element growing, causing that, or it can be external. could be food, could be environment. Once we assess that and we detox people and we get their systems cleared out, then we go on to say, how sick are you? Are you still feeling poorly? Okay, let's assess for SIRS. Only then do I start doing those testing. So usually the first round of testing that I do with people is a urine mycotoxin test. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really, it's dependent on what lab people prefer. A urine mycotoxin test is not the end-all be-all. It is in particular a data set point, and that's something I really want to drive home to people. And you also need to know the clinical question you're asking before you just order these tests. There's an ELISA test, and then the other test is a liquid chromatography test. When you're working in urine, Consider it a metabolized tissue, a metabolized substance. It's gone through the liver. It's gone through the kidneys. It's been processed. It's gone through phase one, phase two. It no longer looks like the thing that came into your system. So when you're using something like um, the ELISA test, is it okay if I say labs, companies? Yeah, sure. If you're using a real-time urine ELISA test, which is my preferred one, um, they use an antibody substrate or they use an antibody setup. And these antibodies aren't monoclonal. 
So they're polyclonal, so they have a little bit of wiggle room with how specific they are, which is a nice thing because, you know, when mycotoxins get processed by your liver and your kidneys, you know, maybe a nitrogen group gets moved around, maybe an acid group gets moved around. They look a little bit different from when they came in. So what you're wanting to look at in the urine is what metabolized stuff is coming out in the pee. And so the question there is, you know, how well are people metabolizing? Um, so using the urine mycotoxin test, I'll usually provoke people. So that way we can see something come out of the system. And then usually that has some type of positivity. And then we start treating people, which is pulling it out of storage. So we expect the urine to kind of go up and then we see it drop back down over time. So the urine mycotoxin test um, is usually the first round um, of, of testing that I do for folks. Okay. And so if that comes back as positive, do you jump into treatment or do you do other things at that point to evaluate? Um, yeah. So part of the treatment that leading up to taking that test um, because it involves um, provocation, I do a lot of detox prep with people. So there are some really sensitive folks that I have who, like, they can't drink water without developing hives. It's like, well, how the heck do you get glutathione into these people to do, mm -hmm. to do a test? Um, and so there can be upwards of, like, an eight-week pre-provocation kind of prep work for people. So um, I tell people not to lose hope because even though it's kind of pre-testing, it's still setting them up. So that way, when we do move into the detox phase, they won't herx as hard or if they won't herx at all. Um, so once mm, I get just a pause for a second. So for the listeners, herxing is sort of a reaction that can happen when you're um, mobilizing some aggravating factor where you get like increased symptoms of brain fog and achiness and um, nausea and very other um, troubling symptoms. So it, it can often be debilitating. So that's, I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. <laughs> get a little worked up sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, usually when a urine mycotoxin test then comes back, I focus, like I said, the low hanging fruit on detoxing those people. I typically don't do too much more in depth testing because I want to give the process of a minimizing exposure and then um, detox. It's time to really shift and change the clinical picture. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I'm a little bit of a hands-off interventionist at that point. Usually maybe, you know, after three weeks or so, especially if someone's out of exposure, um, in my good cases, I tend to see uh, improvements in a lot of the neurocognitive stuff, the brain fog, the focusing, and that picture. Some people will continue to have fatigue or they might have some type of muscle pain that pops up. And depending on what the case is also showing, there can be times where a chronic infection pops up as we're detoxing people, um, as people's immune systems are coming back online as we're pulling out the mycotoxins. Um, so it's not um, unheard of for me to do some testing after urine mycotoxins um, are partially addressed that are looking at chronic 
um, chronic infections, a lot of uh, viral stuff, Lyme, co-infections, um, and kind of moving on from there. Yeah. So, you know, I imagine it's individualized and you pivot at different points based on what what your um, patient is experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, going into further into treatment, um, I want to say that before we talk about this, that, you know, remediation or figuring out the source of exposure is pretty much a whole topic in itself. And we might need to have another episode talking about that because I'm sure people listening are thinking, well, where did, if I have this, where did I get it? And do I still have it? Am I still exposed to this mold? And that's a, that's a whole another chapter of the journey um, that I think we would go into in a different kind of episode because of the, the attention that needs to be put towards that. But going further down the line, we've started. Um, once this detoxification process has um, taken place and then you've tested and does, where do you go from there as far as treatment is, and what would someone expect in working with you as far as how long they, they would need to be treated and how much would they expect to improve? Mm-hmm. And that depends on the, the comorbidities that's happening. So if someone just has a, a frank mycotoxicosis, um, if they avoid exposure, um, I've seen some full recovery in six months in some amazing cases. I tell people, get out of here. You don't need me anymore. You know what you need to do. <laughs> like you've graduated. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are people who, um, you know, have have more difficult cases that um, are a, a bit more um, a bit more dragged out. And you know, once you've worked through um, that, that detox picture, uh, it really pops up to see what is happening with the chronic infection picture, addressing that, and then eventually getting to that SERS picture. So if someone is still, you know, feeling cruddy after the megatoxin um, detox and some of the chronic infection workup, um, doing the SERS workup um, and finding those inflammatory parameters that are elevated can be really helpful. And it's usually at that time that I start being very specific with nutraceuticals that are targeting some of the different inflammatory reactions. Um, So something like TGF-beta or MMP9, when those um, are elevated, there's an amazing array of things in the naturopathic toolbox that can address these. So we go from a detox phase to maybe like... um, a, uh, you know, anti-infective phase. And then we go into that anti-inflammatory phase as kind of the, the last, um, or the next, the next step. Yeah. So after listening to you explain this, it really solidifies something for me, which is that this is really kind of more of a global environmental illness. And sort of the mold is maybe the tipping point, but as you're going through this journey, you see that um, other environmental factors are really uh, pointing towards this global inflammation process that's taking place. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. So the you know you you find other triggers of inflammation, and um, you have in in order for your 
patient to feel back to stability, the end game is to remove the inflammation and, and stabilize it and restore the body centrally. Yeah. And I think that the inflammation isn't the final step. I think a lot of people um, go, oh, the inflammation and then the systems will correct itself. And someone's been sick for that long, their systems aren't going to correct themselves with just pulling out the inflammation. So what I find kind of the cherry on top is really going back and tonifying the systems at the end. Do, do they need some type of hormonal support? Do they need adrenal support? Um, you know, are we supplementing with different hormones? Or, you know, what what is it at the end that you can really do um, big, big tonifying steps, which might involve like supra physiological using, using, um, some of Paul Anderson's terms, using really big whopping doses of things to really get, um, systems up and running and then getting them on kind of a, a holding pattern. So, um, when you are addressing this, don't stop at the inflammation. The inflammation is kind of, um, the last step on the chronic piece, but then you actually need to go back and you have to heal the person. You know, you have to heal them and you need to bring them online and get them functioning normal. Um, and I think a lot of physicians forget that. And that's where our general practice, naturopathic training, um, really comes in handy too. Well, thanks for pointing that out because um, that's really key to know that, you know, the that it kind of moves forward um, from there and that there's additional building and strengthening of the body. Mm-hmm. Well, I would like to hear maybe a take home message or two from you about the mycotoxin illness or SIRS. And then if you could just give us some information about you and your practice and some of the work you're done, I know you you're involved with a nonprofit. I would love to hear about that as well. Sure. Um, take homes. So for healthcare providers, I think um, my my take home is always having uh, mold in the back of your mind. And if you ask a patient and they go, oh, I don't think there's any, even if there's the phrase, I don't think, that's still not a clear rule out for exposure. There's been so many times where I have asked people, do you have mold in your home? Do you have mold in your home? Do you have mold in your car? You know, and it goes, you know, overlooked for like a year of treatment and we're not getting anywhere. And then come to find out it's their car, you know. And so always kind of have a um, skeptical eye. And it doesn't have to be a skeptical eye to the patient. It's a skeptical eye to the environment and what exposures can still be around. Um, the the take home that I'd give for patients is keep looking. Someone will listen to you sometimes. And I know a lot of people who are chronically ill, you already know this, but sometimes you're going to have to be your own advocate and it's uncomfortable. It's upsetting. You shouldn't have to be in that position, but sometimes you have to. And if you are to a point where um, some physician or some doctor tells you that it couldn't be mold, and you really, in your heart of hearts, think that it's mold, you need to trust that intuition and you need to go find someone who's going to take that seriously for you. There's been so many people who um, have unfortunately um, uh, essentially have beat around the bush because of someone else who've told them over and over again that mold, mold couldn't be making you sick. 
Um, and they could have saved years of chronic illness um, had it been something that they could have had addressed earlier on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I so agree with that last statement um, to, you know, that patients will experience a lot of naysayers from family members and providers and other professionals. So, yeah, to keep keep pressing for answers. So, mm-hmm. and well, what about one, your... One other thing I'm sorry uh, that I want to mention too for patients is if you meet a physician and you're, um, and this goes with really anyone in your life, and you're just, you're not vibing and you're not connecting and it's not feeling... Uh, good and nutritive and supportive. I don't, I'm not clear on how good the therapeutic impact is going to be there too. So always make sure that you're, you're working with someone you like. They don't have to be your best friend. You know, they don't have to break boundaries. You don't have to break boundaries. Um, but it really has to be someone that you enjoy that you have these positive feelings towards because that really goes back to what I was talking about earlier with um, the polyvagal theory and people being out of their fight or flight. If you go into a fight or flight when you're seeing a physician and you're sitting with them, there's going to be such a difficult charge for your body just around that therapeutic interaction that, um, you know, I would say go off your gut. Also, when you interact with doctors, if you have a happy feeling and you feel safe, and that's the biggest thing, you feel safe and heard, that can do wonders for therapy versus working with someone who's not listening, but can put you through the gamut of, you know, all these different medications. So just Mm -hmm. consider that. That's such a good point. We learned about that in naturopathic school, right? The the therapeutic alliance between the doctor and the patient is essential. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about your professional um, practice and your nonprofit and um, how people can keep in touch with your work. Um, I will say that I really enjoy your Instagram posts and your website is phenomenal, but uh, anything else you can tell us? Sure. I, w- I would love to. Um, so I am vice president of a nonprofit called ICI, I-S-E-A-I, like the ocean, ICI. And it's the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. It is a nonprofit dedicated to teaching physicians how to uh, treat, diagnose, manage environmentally acquired illness, everything from chronic infections um, to mold exposure, you name it, we're, we're doing it with folks. Um, and, you know, we, we had a great uh, conference last year, of course, um, you know, uh, the state of things right now, we're not sure about uh, conferences and safety of people meeting, but, you know, we've had everyone from uh, Lawrence Akron there who um, does a lot of uh, work around, um, mast cells. We had, um, oh gosh, uh, Horowitz there. We had um, uh, Mary Ackerley there and Neil Nathan and all these wonderful names. And so we're really working on getting all of the great minds kind of together so we can be all in one place to bring this information to the masses. So um, that's that's a bit of my, my loving pet project is ICI. And I'm so thankful to be involved with some of the amazing people that are on that board too. So, um, you know, if you're interested in learning more, 
about environmentally acquired illness, we definitely invite people to come and join. Um, we invite everyone um, to come and be a member. And then as the time passes, we will be working on a certification um, in addition to our educational uh, conferences that we do. So we're excited about that. Um, so that's the nonprofit. And then for my practice, it is Life After Mold. And I am located in Waterbury, Vermont, beautiful place up here. And um, what can I tell you about it? Uh, online on my website, I have a Mold Prevention 101. It's a, a free e-booklet. Um, and it just kind of gives you a rundown about how um, you can go around your home, see where signs of water intrusion might be initial and how to like stem things off at the pass. And so that's been really helpful for a lot of people. It's been circulated at a few conferences too. So I definitely encourage people to get a hold of that. Um, I am on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube now. I'm trying to put out monthly YouTube videos. All of those have the handle Life After Mold. And then something I've been very excited about recently is um, I've started writing articles for NDNR, the Naturopathic Doctor News Review. Um, and every month I'm putting out something about mold. Um, so oh, cool. yeah, yeah, it's been great. There's, um, I think one out right now on mold and fatigue, mold in the endocrine system. Um, I, I did a case and then there's one coming up on dermatology and autoimmunity and neurology. And I think there's even a pediatric one coming out later in the summer. So, um, please keep your eye out for that. And, um, I'm hoping to at some point in the coming weeks, um, this might be uh, a little far gone for some of your listeners, depending on when this comes out. Um, but I will be doing uh, a immune system support, a free immune system support webinar uh, for people suffering uh, from mold illness, um, just you know because of the times right now. So that's that's wonderful. So well, thank you for sharing your passion and your expertise, all your knowledge. Um, and just giving us uh, kind of an inside take on, you know, this uh, really important topic of mold illness, um, mycotoxin illness. Sirs, we really appreciate you being here. Yeah, I thank you so much for having me. And I encourage everyone, don't be afraid of self-education. You know, we, we weren't really taught a whole lot of stuff about mold in um, my education and a lot of it has come from other organizations um, and uh, mycology organizations and just spending a lot of time in PubMed. So um, definitely do not be afraid of uh, doing a good amount of your own education. If you're a student fresh out of school, you can figure it out. Excellent. Well, I hope we can catch up down the road maybe and talk about remediation or just you know, where, how people can find the sources of their exposures and that type of thing. Um, but for now, um, I want to wish you well and well for your community up there dealing with what uh, the world is facing right now. And um, thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Doc. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode on mold-related illness with Dr. Lauren Tessier as our special guest. I hope that you 
enjoyed the episode as much as I did. And I hope that you get a chance to share this with your loved ones, friends, relatives, doctors, and healthcare providers, just to bring up some of the awareness of mold-related illness and some of the assessment tools and the various doctors out there that are addressing this and dedicating themselves to learning how to help people in this area. In addition, I want to mention a few resources um, because we did not get to go into remediation, but I personally um, have benefited from having a HEPA filter in my home, which is able to pull spores out of circulation. These are air filters that are specifically designed for helping remove particulate from the air. Um, And also the companies that I know of that are involved with this, one is called Allen Corp. And you can Google them, allencorp.com. And the other one's called Molecule, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E. These are two great filter companies that you can look up and see and look into possibly filtration systems for your home to prevent mold growth. The other one I'd like to chip in is the American Lung Association has some very good local and national resources for detecting mold in your environment and doing periodic mold cleanup in your home. Also, as Dr. Tessier mentioned, Don't forget your car, because that is also a big source of mold exposure. So I hope that this episode enlightened you and gave you some information and and introduced you to a very exceptional healthcare provider in Dr. Tessier. And I look forward to speaking with you and discussing future topics on the next episode of the One Thing Podcast.